Back in the spring, my wife Savannah and I returned home after having some dinner with friends one evening out on the river. As we made our way into our home from the garage into our living room, I immediately heard the sounds of all of our fire alarms going off at one time. And so I quickly ran upstairs to see if there had been some type of fire, any trace of smoke, but I couldn't find anything. And so I went back through the house to see if I had somehow missed something, but again, I couldn't find anything suspicious going on and what could be triggering our fire alarms. And so I got the bright idea to call Steve Wilson of our church, who serves with the Newburg Fire Department, and get his opinion of the situation. Well, about 30 seconds into our conversation, he told me, Patrick, get out of the house right now and call 911 immediately. And so that's what I did. The firefighters came to our house about five minutes later. And they quickly assessed the situation as a carbon monoxide leak coming from our heating and cooling system. Now, Steve would later tell me that the levels in our home were so toxic and explosive that had we gone to bed that night, we probably wouldn't have woken up. And you thought you had a gas problem in your home, all right? Well, come to find out, firefighters actually refer to carbon monoxide as the silent killer because without a detector in your home, you can be breathing it in and not really know it. And so what you don't know can literally kill you. Now this weekend, as we begin this brand new series rooted in the book of Proverbs, what we're going to see is that this book kind of serves as a fire alarm for our lives. Now the wisdom that we pick up in this book uh, not only alerts us of how we may be off base in some of our day-to-day decisions, but if we refuse to listen, we can be certain that death will eventually come in certain realms and compartments of our life. Proverbs chapter 8 says it like this, as if wisdom were speaking, we read, now then my children, listen to me, listen to wisdom. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Verse 36, but those who fail to find me, they harm themselves. All who hate me love death. And so for the next three weeks, we are going to be talking about some highly sensitive issues in our life that have the potential to bring us a lot of joy, fulfillment, and satisfaction. And yet at the same time, these can be compartments of our life that bring us a lot of shame and guilt and pain and regret. Now, wisdom is one of those words that we tend to throw around a lot, especially in church. Yet when was the last time we actually considered the full weight of its meaning? And so for the sake of this series, here's how we're going to define wisdom moving forward. Wisdom is about both knowing and doing what's best. It's about knowing and doing what's best. And so that means that you and I have two options in this series as we run after wisdom together. And that's that we can listen to the fire alarm and choose to ignore it, just assuming that everything is going to pan out and everything's going to be okay in our life. Or we can respond to that constant beeping, make some tough decisions, and do what's right, even if it's going to cost us something in the end. Now, you may be here today and uh, you just think that it's absolutely ridiculous that we would actually build our lives upon an ancient book called the Bible and believe that it's God's revealed message to us. And if that's where you're at, I want you to know that nobody's going to force you to believe anything in this series. We're, We're really glad that you're here. But what would it look like for you for the next three weeks to actually live out what it is that we're talking about? Like you don't have to believe the Bible as a whole to be true, to really realize that what we find in Proverbs is just legitimate. I mean, it's just how life tends to work, right? 
And so my question for you is, are you wanting and are you willing to live a better way? And so what if that better life that is talked about can happen through applying wisdom in your day-to-day decisions? And so we thought that we'd start this series off by talking about something that we have no shortage of information about, no shortage of access to in our culture, and that is sex. I mean, as a society, we are obsessed with sex, right? I mean, it sells products, it increases excitement in movies, and if you don't have personal access to it with a significant other, then you simply can pull out your phone and watch two people go at it, right? And so as a church, this is something that we must talk about. God's Word actually talks so much about sex that it's one of the only topics in Scripture that has an entire book of the Bible dealing with it, the Song of Solomon. And so why, as the church, should this be the only source in our life where we don't hear about it? This is something that we have to talk about. And so today, I want to not only discover God's plan and purpose for sex, but how is it best enjoyed? How can you really live out some of these principles so that at the end of the day, you can have a great sex life? Now, you must be creating a culture in your home where you're talking about it and fostering discussion with your children because you need to know that your kids are learning about it. Your kids do hear about sex. I mean, they hear about it from their kids. They're hearing about it in the classroom, different movies they're watching, social media. Again, why does the church have to be the only place where we're not learning about this? I mean, it was God's idea after all, right? And so as uh, Todd said at the beginning of the service, if you have children below the age of 12, then we would encourage you to go ahead and take them back to our incredible children's ministry. It may be your choice to leave them in here. That's okay, too. Uh, I will try to use appropriate discretion. But for children 12 and above, we really want you to leave them in here. I will use, again, discretion, but again, know that they are hearing about sex in many different sources of, in life. Uh, why not hear about it from the Word of God? They say that a spring is purest at its source. And so what does the Bible have to say about this? Now, to fully understand sex from our Creator's perspective, we must start at the beginning of time and discover what's it called original intention. And then from there, what we're going to do is open up Proverbs and see what this book has to say about God's best for our sex life. I want you to hang with me for a moment as we have some ground to cover here at the beginning. Now, according to Genesis chapter 2, our very first parents were a couple named Adam and Eve. Genesis also tells us that all people reflect the image of God, and so that means, very practically, that men, males, we only reflect half of God's image. Therefore, God created females to to bear a more complete picture of himself and provide a helper for Adam. God the Father has fellowship with the Holy Spirit and Jesus the Son, and so it's only appropriate for us as image bearers of God to experience a similar type of community with other people. And so that's where marriage enters the picture. Now, the very first wedding took place before sin and decay ever entered this world. After God walked our very first mom, Eve, down the aisle at their wedding, God declared she and Adam as husband and wife, and then God says this in Genesis 2, 24 and 25. He said, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, at the conception of this marriage, they were officially declared one flesh. And so they were naked with one another, and they felt no insecurities, no shame or embarrassment about it. Why is that? Well, because they were within the parameters of God's will and His design. 
And so rather than feeling shame, Adam and Eve experienced pleasure and delight in this moment. They sensed an intoxicating closeness and oneness with one another because what is inadvertently declared to your spouse during sexual intercourse is I see and I feel every bit of who you are and I accept you just as you are. And so from this moment in the Garden of Eden, we see that the sexual experience is a parallel to the closeness that God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have with one another. Now this is why sex is so much more than just a physical act. You see, it is spiritual. It is emotional. It's psychological. You don't need the Bible to know that that is just true. I mean, no other experience has the potential to be out of this world incredible while at the same time devastating and destructive. And so from this very first marriage, we can learn two really quick things about sex. The first one being this, that sex is a gift from God intended for ultimate pleasure in the right context. Now, due to the sensitivity of this gift, God has given us some very clear parameters and boundaries and specific instructions for how it is to be used so that we can experience it in fullness and joy. And so in its purest form, here are the parameters for how God has designed for sex to be enjoyed. It is between a wife and a husband. It is between a female and a male. Now, anything outside of this box falls short of God's best. Now, this uh, little box here represents the commitment in the covenant of marriage. And so God says, look, anything outside of this is not going to be best. And so that means that sex before marriage is out. Adultery, pornography, sexual interactions with someone of the same gender, bisexuality, bestiality, Swinging, friends with benefits, rape, prostitution, everything that I just listed off is categorized as sexual immorality in Scripture and would be labeled as sin, falling short of God's best. But don't hear God saying no to sex. If anything, he's saying yes. It's just this is how, this is how it's best enjoyed. I mean, how would you respond if I told you that God wants you to experience the best sex possible? You see, believe it or not, this act with appropriate um, understanding of it can actually be one of those things in our life that not only stirs our affection for our spouse, but it can stir our affection for our creator, for God the Father. Well, the second thing that you and I need to hold on to is this, that sex is designed to be the expression of the marital covenant. It is designed to be the expression of the marital covenant. Marriage is a covenant, and that simply means that your spouse doesn't exist for you. Rather, you exist for the betterment of your spouse. It's a call to unconditional love. Now, marriage serves as this picture of the covenant relationship that we have with God because of Jesus entering this dark and broken world 2,000 years ago, becoming our substitute, absorbing the wrath of God that we deserve because of our rebellion, because of our sin. Now, Jesus' blood had to be shed because God declared that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Why blood, you ask? That's a great question. Blood illustrates the seriousness of our sin and the high cost of entering into a relationship with our holy God. Now, throughout history, whenever God would make a covenant or promise with his people, blood was always shed. It showed his people how seriously God takes his word and his promises. 
And so if it's true that when a husband and wife first marry that they're entering into a covenant, that means that blood must be shed. Now this is a little bit graphic, but bear with me because it's really important to understand the the gravity of what's taking place. When sexual intercourse happens for the very first time between a husband and wife, a male and female, blood is shed. And so in that moment, their bodies are connected and you are physically practicing out what it means to be one flesh. It's a private moment between you, your spouse, and your creator. Now, whenever you and I are given a gift in life, there's always two things with that gift. You're gonna be given warnings about how to not use that gift, how to not use that thing, and then there will be proper instructions about how to properly use it and enjoy it. And so that's what we find actually in Proverbs chapter five, warnings and instructions for sex. And so if you have your Bibles or Bible app on your phone or digital device, I want you to go ahead and jump there now. Uh, We're gonna be in chapter five today. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, there's a black Bible right in front of you. That's our gift to you. Uh, If you're worshiping with us back in the chapel, it's underneath uh, that chair right in front of you. Uh, I believe we're going to be on page 452 uh, in those Bibles right in front. And if you don't own a Bible or whatever, words will be up here on the screen. Uh, Let's pick up in verse 1 of chapter 5. Here's what Solomon, the author of this text, uh, says. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Turn your ear to my words of insight that you may maintain discretion and your lips may preserve knowledge. He says this, for the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. Now right here, Solomon is warning his students against the lie and the allure of sexual temptations outside the bonds of the marital covenant. Now notice that he puts a lot of emphasis upon the words of the adulterous woman to the man. Women often think that men want to have sex most of the time. And that's just not true. Men want to have sex all the time. (laughs) But what Solomon does here is is he gets to the need behind the need that men have. And and that's respect. See, men want to be admired. We want to feel a sense of accomplishment. We want people to be proud of us. And so if men are not sensing that from their wife in the home, someone else and someone else is giving it to them, Solomon says, look, you got to be careful. That's a really dangerous position to be in. And so sometimes men will use sex to get respect. And you know what? In a similar fashion, women will use sex to run after love. And so both genders face the temptation to approach this sacred act with self-serving motives. That's why it's important for you and I to understand this, that you are more than what you get from or give to someone else. That you are more than what you get from or give to someone else. Don't reduce yourself down to something that you give to someone in your life. Don't reduce someone down to a thing or a robot that exists to simply make you happy. Now, whenever we approach sex in that way, we are really objectifying people and really we're negating seeing them as being image bearers of the creator most high. But let's be honest. Sexual intercourse has very little to do with the physical act and more to do with this deep need that we all feel to be accepted and to be satisfied, right? I mean, why else would nearly 30 million million people sign up to have an affair through an online website? Why else would you exchange integrity, give up character, and jeopardize the most important thing that's been entrusted to your care in this life, and that's your family? 
You see, here's the thing though, every individual that signed up for an affair on ashleymadison.com that we've all heard about on the news lately, it was really an effort to run after God. But the problem is this, as theologian C.S. Lewis says, we are far too easily pleased. You see, we would rather give up what's eternal for something that's temporary. We'd rather run after immediate gratification rather than lasting joy. You see, God wants to take us to the Rocky Mountains, but instead we settle for just a postcard, right? And so when it comes to our self-serving motives with sex, it really reveals that we have this need that is beyond ourselves and it's beyond any one person meeting for us. Let's keep going here in Proverbs 5. Solomon says, but in the end, she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. In the previous verses, uh, understand that honey and oil were both the sweetest and smoothest substances in Israel at the time. And and the thing is this, that sexual temptation on the surface, it, it looks that way. It looks sweet. It looks smooth. But then Solomon says that in actuality, it's like gall. Now, gall was this extremely bitter substance in the ancient world that was associated with poison and a slow death. And so while feeding sexual immorality seems like a good idea on the surface and at first, many of us know from experience that in reality, it leads to regret, shame, and it damages those that we love most in life, right? This past week, I learned how uh, Eskimos hunt and kill wolves Uh, It's an intriguing and grueling process. What happens is this, that first Eskimo coats a knife blade with animal blood and allows it to freeze. And and then what he does is he, after it's frozen, he adds another layer of blood and another and another and another until the blade is completely concealed by frozen blood. And so next what the hunter does is he fixes the knife in the ground to be sticking straight up with the blade in the air. And so when a wolf follows his senses to the source of the scent and discovers the bait, the wolf begins to lick it. He begins tasting that fresh frozen blood. He begins to lick faster and faster, more and more vigorously, lapping the blade until the edge is bare. Fervishly now, harder and harder, the wolf licks the blade in the Arctic night. By that point, the wolf's craving for blood is so intense that he does not notice the razor-sharp sting of the naked blade on his own tongue, nor does he recognize that the instant at which his thirst is being satisfied by his own warm blood. You see, his appetite naturally just craves more and more. Well, after a few hours of this happening, the wolf eventually bleeds out, and the next day, the Eskimo comes and he retrieves his body. You see, the wolf's insatiable desire for more started out slow. And then over time, it it grew, and it eventually led to his death. Now, you might tell yourself that watching a few, a few videos here and there is, is harmless. Or flirting with him at the office is fun because he makes you laugh. And clicking on photos of your ex-boyfriend or girlfriend from high school on Facebook doesn't seem to be that big of a deal on the surface. Or sending emails to her about how your needs aren't being met at the home, it seems to be a good outlet for you. And yet, is it possible that the biggest liar that you know is yourself. I mean, could it be that you think everything is fine, but really you're in a room full of carbon monoxide and and you just don't even know it? Now, if we uh, skip to verse 15 in our text, we're we're given some instructions about how to really have intoxicating sex. It's one thing to really play defense, right? 
but it's another to play offense. And, and so that's the bad news. We're now going to transition into the good news because uh, Solomon knows how we're wired. Look at verse 15. Here's what he says. He says, drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, he says, never to be shared with strangers. Now, this is a call to faithfulness in marriage. Your husband or wife is the only one qualified to meet the sexual desires and fantasies that you have. Now, this week, I had a whole lot of fun doing some research on this. (laughs) Researchers have noticed and monitored uh, the brain during sexual intercourse and the activity is the exact same, believe it or not, for both men and women. A chemical called dopamine is excreted in your brain during sex, creating a sense of addiction to the act. This chemical is what creates that euphoric type sensation during pleasure. And at the same time, your pituitary gland excretes a chemical called oxytocin, which makes you feel a sense of bond and love towards the person that you're having sex with. Now, the more frequently oxytocin is excreted during the act with whom you're having sex with, the greater the bond will be with that individual. Now, here's the thing. Science is saying that the best sex happens when it's with the same person over and over again. Now, this really shouldn't surprise us, though, right? I mean, God's word has said it all along. And research is simply proving what Solomon is saying with our text. One thing I've learned about sex is that it's kind of like aged wine. It only gets better with time, all right? Now, my wife would definitely vouch for that and agree with it. (laughs) She can't keep her hands off me. She's not in this service. Check out verse 18 here. Solomon continues to say this. May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. Amen. Verse 19. A loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love, Solomon says. Now that word intoxicated means exactly what you think it means. Be so drawn to each other's physical bodies and personalities that it's tough to really see straight beyond the bedroom, beyond the home. And so if sex is not fun for you, if it's something that you don't look forward to, you and your spouse need to ask why and have some really honest conversations. And I would encourage you to do this today. Don't put it off. Do you not feel pursued? Are you drinking from another source somewhere else? Has creativity and spontaneity left the bedroom? And notice here in verse 19 that Solomon says, guys, may her breast satisfy you always. Now, what Solomon doesn't say here is, ladies, may you always be drawn to his chest hair. (laughs) Right? I mean, what we don't read here is, ladies, may his beer belly always be a turn-on for you. (laughs) That's not not what's said here. Because why? Men and women are wired differently. And and if you don't believe me, if you think that we're all the same, then let let me just give you this example, and it'll prove what Solomon is saying here. Ladies, what happens the moment you step out of the shower and your wife happens to, or your, your, your wife, no, outside of the box, outside of the box, all right? Uh, 21st century, but, okay, ladies, what happens when you step out of the shower and your husband is right there in the bathroom? 
He's all eyes, right? I mean, that, that's what I'm getting at. I mean, he's checking you out from head to toe, and he's loving every minute. It doesn't matter what he's doing. When you step out of that shower, his eyes are glued onto you, whether you like it or not. The world just stops spinning for him in that moment. Now, guys, what happens the moment we step out of the shower? <laughs> Our wives tend to say, well, you're getting water everywhere. Why are you using that towel? Better hurry up. Come on, we're running late. Put your dirty clothes in the hamper. You know what to do with them. All the while, we're looking in the mirror, and we're just kind of impressed with ourselves, aren't we, guys? It doesn't make sense to us. Now, this is simply reflective of how men and women think differently and are wired differently. Men tend to be more visual. Women are more emotional and verbal, right? And again, this is reflective of how differently we think throughout the course of our day. Now, if we were to make kind of a pie chart of the thoughts that consume a woman's mind throughout the course of the day and then match it up with how a man thinks, it might look something like this. And I kind of droned this out for the sake of this discussion. Women... You might think about laundry and how the laundry needs to get done and you've got to cook dinner for tonight. And, and if you work outside the home, you're bringing the responsibilities that you have in the office home with you maybe and that's going to consume a lot of your thoughts. Or maybe you think, man, I've got to get some new clothes. It's fall, fall's approaching. I really want uh, some, some new clothes. And then you've got kids to think about, right? I mean, what's the report card going to look like here in a few weeks? Or you might be thinking about a conversation with a friend about her emotions that you had the night before and you need to fix it and it's really frustrating you. And then, hey, you got, you got to decorate the home. I mean, your living room, it's a little bit out of date, right? And so what would it look like for you to update the colors in there and to get a new couch? And, and then right here, hey, I've got to update my Instagram. I need people to know that, hey, things are looking good in my world and uh, thoughts about a recently read blog post, right? Guys, you see this little red line right here? That's sex. <laughs> She's not thinking about it all that much. And so this is what a woman's mind typically looks like throughout the course of her day. Now, what, what do men think about? What consumes a majority of their thoughts throughout the day? Let, let's look at this. <laughs> you laugh because you know it's true. <laughs> Amen, right? Now, guy, ladies, your, your husband is not a pervert for thinking about sex and wanting to always talk about it and always wanting to do it. Again, let's ask the question of original intention. How did God mean for this to be from the beginning? Let's take a look. God actually talks about this. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, God tells Adam, the male, the husband, this, be fruitful and increase in number. This is a call to have sex. And then he goes on to say this, fill the earth and subdue it. This is a call to work. <laughs> And so a man's thoughts typically think about work and sex throughout the course of the day, and that is completely normal and natural. Now, God is saying that this is how it was meant to be from the beginning. That's what the Bible says. Dr. Um, Willard Harley shares a compelling illustration that may be helpful for ladies in here in understanding a man's sex drive. Suppose there was a stool with a glass of water on it. The husband was next to the stool where he could easily reach the water, the wife is next to her husband, but she is immobilized and can't quite reach the water. And so the wife turns to her husband and says, would you please pour me a glass of water? I'm really thirsty. The husband responds by saying, I don't really feel like it. I'm not in the mood, maybe in a couple hours, okay? The wife says, I'm, I'm really thirsty right now, though. The husband says, it's been a really long day. I'm too tired to get you a glass of water right now. 
The next day comes and the wife, having gone without more water, says again, will you please just give me a glass of water right now? The husband says, why do you always have to ask for water? I'll give you a glass of water when I'm in the mood, all right? And the wife can feel her temperature rising. She's not happy. She's thirsty. And the only person that can give her that glass of water is her husband. She begins to demand it. And the husband glares at his wife and says, you're not getting any water with that kind of attitude. (laughs) The next day, the husband finally says, okay, here's your water, but drink it fast and don't tell me that you're going to be thirsty again tomorrow. (laughs) And so the wife drinks, but she does so with bitterness and frustration. Now, talking to both husbands and wives regarding sex, a guy by the name of Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, don't deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent. Now, just one verse before Paul says this, Paul reminds spouses that they are not to neglect their obligation to one another. And by the lie that says that this is my body, I can do what I want with it. And while this is a call for wives to frequently satisfy their husbands in the bedroom, creatively, This is a greater challenge for men to be the type of husband that your wife would want to serve you in that way with joy and delight. And so guys, husbands, men, if it's been a while and you're quick to point the finger at your wife, let me suggest that you look in the mirror and you ask yourself some hard questions. And when you come home at night, do you willingly enter her world and show genuine care for her? Do you frequently communicate your emotions with intention? Do you give her the affection that she needs without the motivation of it resulting in sex? You know, as I prepared for this message, like I do every uh, sermon, I asked for God to do in me what he wants to do in you. And so as I prayed about things, I realized more than anything how sex has kind of been a revealer lately of my selfishness. You see, I quickly drift towards thinking that my wife exists simply to meet my desires when I want it and how I want it. Therefore, I shut down if it becomes clear that having sex is not going to be a reality for the evening or the morning or my lunch break (laughs) or while staying the night at her parents' house. (laughs) But you know what? More often times than not, I have no one else to blame for my sexual frustrations than myself because those are the moments that I either idolize sex or I idolize my wife by expecting her to fulfill a need when I want and how I want without taking into consideration her feelings. You see, to have a healthy sex life, what we must do is identify the greater desire behind our drive. You see, what we really want is to be accepted. We just use sex to get there. What we really want is community and adventure. We just use sex to get there. What we really want is to be admired, cared for, and loved. We just use sex to get there. You see, the word that we can use to really sum up what we're aiming for, what our greater, deeper desire is, is this term intimacy, right? I mean, we long to be known and we long to know someone else. But if our decisions don't match up with our intentions, how can we ever expect to get there? And so this will require us to view sex differently. So if you want God's best for your marriage, if you want God to keep blessing your relationship with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, if you're single and you hope to be married again someday, if you want to have the greatest sex ever, here's what it all comes down to. 
that true intimacy is found not in what you get, but in what you give. True intimacy is found not in what you get, but what you give. You see, your spouse does not exist for you, rather you exist for your spouse. My mom and dad have, um, have always had a great marriage. This past June, they celebrated their 39th wedding anniversary. And like every couple, they've had their seasons of intoxicating intimacy, I'm sure. And then they've had those moments where it's probably been more difficult for them. Lately, it's been certainly more of a test. You see, about five years ago, my dad um, was put on the heart transplant list. And, and since that moment, it's, it's been really difficult. It's been a challenge. It's been a battle for them. They can't do as many things as they would like together. My dad is always going to different doctor's appointments and taking different medications. A lot of the time, he's just exhausted. And uh, though he does have his good days, there are moments where he's just really tired. And all the while, they live with this constant stress and burden of not knowing when my dad is going to receive a heart. And if he does receive a heart, will he make it through the surgery? And if he does, what will his quality of life be like? Will it increase or decrease? But you know what? My mom and dad are a couple who understand what true intimacy is. You see, if you were to sit down with them, never once would you hear them complain about what they're going through. They're not bitter or cynical about it. Rather, each and every day, my mom wakes up with this kind of mission to serve my dad, comfort him, and assure him that she is going to be with him no matter what. And, and my dad, though he's not going to be training for a marathon anytime soon, he sees it as his duty to love my mom, care for her, provide for her, give her gifts, and, and remind her that one day, Jesus is going to make all things new. I suppose that if my mom and dad were to approach marriage with thinking that intimacy was about what they could personally get out of it, they would have checked out a long time ago. I mean, it's been really difficult for them lately. But you see, with each day that passes, they are learning more and more that intimacy is not about what you get, it's not about what you absorb, what you take from someone else. No, true intimacy is about what you give, it's how you serve the other person. And so maybe for you, you have a husband who's been in a deep valley of depression lately and his desire for you has just really been lacking. It could be that you're a high school student and you just wonder how in the world am I ever gonna suppress these desires that I feel on a frequent daily basis. Or maybe you're a single parent and you think, I just want a companion by my side. I just long to have someone here with me. And I'm sure that what you are going through is really difficult and I can't imagine the frustration that you encounter on a daily basis. I've been there before and you know what? I will be there again in the future at some point. But more than getting bitter and more than getting angry, what if God has allowed these desires to go unfulfilled and this battle to continue on so that you may know his nearness and so that you can see that life is found in him, in him alone? What if God has allowed this to happen so that you can have a picture of what Jesus endured for your sake? You see, Philippians chapter two tells us that Jesus, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he made, he forced himself to be nothing. Why? So that we could obtain true intimacy with him. And so our motivation to deny ourselves on a daily basis, it will never go beyond the cross of Jesus. Because at the cross, we see that true intimacy is not about what you get, but it's about how you give. And that makes all the difference in the world. How would your marriage and your family change and be altered if that were a reality for you? Let's pray. 
Father, you are good and you are perfect and you are holy and you are set apart. And Father, we thank you for that. And and God, I know that a lot of us are experiencing some frustrations and, and we do want that intimacy, but God, more than having an intimacy with another person, would you teach us what closeness and nearness and oneness with you really looks like? Because God, at the end of the day, that's, that's really what we're aiming for. We thank you for Jesus and, and continue teaching us, Lord, as we follow him and show us that life can be found in you and you alone. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray and gather. Amen.